1: Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson and this is episode 80 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast with a new episode released every single day. Big name interview shows come out on Mondays, like this one, and short four or five minute daily episodes are released Tuesday through Sunday on a show that I call This Day Rocks. Thanks as always for hitting play. If this is your first time listening, please find Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app or player of choice and subscribe directly on there so you don't miss a single episode. As I said, one comes out every single day and you can only get all those episodes on the Vintage Rock Pod feed. So give it a like or a subscribe separately on there too, please. I've had so many new listeners get on board lately, it's brilliant to hear from everyone new and old, so thank you. Well, it's been six weeks or so since the last big interview show. It all slows down for the rockers over the Christmas period, but they are back now and they're rearing to go with lots of new albums, tours and more going on. So plenty of great guests lined up for you. Now, my guest today, to break us back in, is the original member, songwriter and bass player in one of the most controversial bands of all time. And that's not an understatement. A band that tore their way through the UK, ripping up the establishment, spitting at the establishment, sticking two fingers up at the establishment. They blazed through a cultural shift comparable to anything else in modern history. I am, of course, talking about the Sex Pistols, and my guest is Glenn Matlock. Glenn is another rock and roll hall of famer that I've had on the show. I think that's about 20 in just 80 shows, which isn't bad. Although he nor the rest of the band, as you'd expect, bothered turning up to the ceremony. In fact, the lead singer Johnny Rotten penned a self-written note, which, amongst everything else, said, "Next to the Sex Pistols, rock and roll, and that Hall of Fame is a piss stain. Your museum, urine in wine. We're not coming." Now, Glenn started off working in Malcolm McLaren's shop, Let It Rock, and then Vivian Westwood's famous shop, Sex, which he helped make the sign for. He was, as I said, a founding member of the Sex Pistols, along with Steve Jones on guitar, Paul Cook on drums, and Johnny Rotten on vocals. Glenn experienced the crazy days, the ill-fated anarchy tour with The Clash and Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers, signing and being dropped by EMI due to the public backlash, and of course he was on that famous TV show, the Today programme, with Bill Grundy when Steve Jones swore creating headlines all over the land. Glenn is credited as a songwriter on 10 of the 12 songs on their genre defining Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols album, but his time with the band would end when tensions rose and he quit. As you'll hear in the interview, there may be a bit of regret that he didn't take Malcolm McLaren's offer to rejoin a few weeks later, but you can hear that for yourself. Now, he was, of course, replaced by Sid Vicious, and that's where the story of the band takes an even darker twist. Now, as well as the Sex Pistols, Glenn worked with mid and Steve New in The Rich Kids, whose debut album went to number 24 on the UK charts. The list of people he's worked with is phenomenal, including Blondie, Ronnie Wood, The Faces, Iggy Pop, The Damned Primal Scream, and many more. He's back with a new solo album now, Consequences Coming, which I've heard, and it's a belter, to be honest. So, in this interview, we touch on the early days of The Pistols, his leaving, the reunion tour in 1996, and his not-so-happy take on the TV series that came out last year. There's the very famous one-off gig that he did with Sid Vicious in a band that they called The Vicious White Kids. We talk about Mid-Jour, Playing With The Faces, and Blondie, and about the new record too. I also ask a couple of questions that were sent in by subscribers on the Vintage Rock Pod YouTube channel as well, so if you sent one in, then listen out to see if yours was included. Now there is a little technical issue in the middle, but I'll explain what was missed when you listen, so please enjoy this chat with former Sex Pistol, Glenn Matlock. Glenn, how are you getting on, Glenn?
2: Not sweat, Paul. We're doing all right.
1: Good stuff. Now, you've got a new album, Consequences Coming, which is out April 27th. That's I've had a right. preview <laughs> listen. It sounds fantastic. There's a lot of energy in there, and I'm looking forward to you telling me all about it soon. But we're going to have to start with someone we sadly lost a few weeks ago, Vivian Westwood. Now, you obviously knew her very well. You worked in a shop. You helped create the famous sign as well, all that sort of stuff. Just tell us a little bit about Vivian and what she was well, like back then.
2: Well, Vivian... Um driven, capable, um, forward-looking lady, a very single-minded, um, pr- privileged to have, you know, worked with her in a very tiny way back when I was a young man trying to find my way in the wacky world of mid-1970s London. Yeah. But, but, you know, both her and Malcolm certainly had something going for them that was above and beyond what most other people were up to and... You know, the way they looked at things and the way, way they went about it. I mean, it was all a bit hand-to-mouth at, at the beginning. But I think one of the most telling things with Vivian was I, a few, oh, I don't know, six, seven years ago, I went to China. I was involved in doing something. I went to Shanghai and I got there, flew overnight, got there all jet-lagged in the morning. I had a couple of cups of coffee at the airport while I was waiting for a car to pick me up. And then I probably had too much coffee to then go to sleep. Then I thought, what I'll do, I'll walk round the block. When I got to the hotel, I thought, "Oh, I'll need um, I'll need some kind of landmark so I don't get lost." And I looked around. Right next to the hotel was a Vivian Westwood flagship store, and it was like, <laughs> "Oh, you know." And when I went, I didn't know what to expect from China, and I got it, and I certainly didn't expect to see that there. And it just shows you how how um, successful she had been, but doing stuff that's kind of a a bit alternative. You know, lots of people can be successful just playing the game, but she didn't play the game and and, um, she was successful despite all that. So there you go. Indeed,
1: indeed. Fascinating. Fascinating to hear all that sort of stuff. Um, Now, you've had an extraordinary career. I mean, the people you've worked with, it's a real who's who of the rock world. The the paths that have crossed your way is is astonishing. And uh, a lot of things are in your book. I Was a Teenage Sex Pistol. It's a fantastic book. Um, Recommend anyone to go out on there and and check it out if they haven't done so already. But we'll touch slightly on on some of the sex pistol stuff, if you don't mind, obviously. Um, Let's go back to the, the early days then, in the rehearsal room. I mean, what was it like coming up with the songs? Because you were doing something new. It was different. You weren't just trying to be the next, I don't know, insert band name here. So what was those early days like in the, in the room?
2: Well, I, I think the one thing that the Sex Pistols knew for definite was we knew what we didn't want to be. <laughs> and and sort of by a process of negation, we kind of got, to, we didn't know what we, we knew what we didn't want to sound like, but we was going to do it anyway. And it just kind of came out through happenstance, or our different sets of influences, you know, I like, the the pirate radio stations and the earlier beat kind of groups, you know, like the Who and the Kinks and the, the R-Birds and the Small Faces, my big favourite band back then, and then all the Tamla Motown stuff. Paul liked some of the Tamla Motown stuff, and like Roxy Music and things, got Deluxe and things like that. Steve was in love with the New York Dolls and Johnny Thunders, and John hated all that, and liked um, Captain Beefheart and Can and Van Der Graaff Generator. I hated Van de Graaff Generator. Hawkwind was all right. But anyway, there was all these different influences going on, and it all added up to the ingredients for what became a very rich wheeler bass or stew. And although the music came out quite simple, um, there was a lot going on behind it, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, and just talking about um, a gig that happened, um, I spoke with Steve Diggle from the Buscocks, and he remembers you guys coming up to Manchester to play a gig up there with them. Do you remember that one?
2: Do you know what I remember most about it? it was, it was doing a sound check at the Lesser Free Trade Hall, going round the corner to get some fish and chips, And I said uh, to the guy, I said, what fish you got? He said, fish. And I said, yeah, was it place or haddock or cod? Wouldn't mind haddock if you got it. He said, it's fish. I said, you must know what kind of fish it is. He said, no, it's fish. He said, are you trying to be funny? And that was was one of my first times up north. And I thought, oh, it's a bit different up here. I remember that. I
1: love
2: it. And I, I also remember being the navigator in the van. And not really understanding the difference between the, the blue motorway lines and the and the sort of black other lines. And the black other line, not only did it look shorter, it also went through the town of Matlock in Derbyshire, which I'd never been to before. Oh. So we went that way. It took blinking ages. Got <laughs> there. We was late. My fault. And Malcolm had set up a last-minute radio thing, which we missed, because I wanted to go through a town of Matlock, so I wasn't. (laughs) It's funny when you do gigs. You you know, they're the kind of things you remember more than anything else. Or I do, anyway. But, yeah, I don't know that there was lots of people there who went on to... um,
1: And this is where his connection dropped out. But he was basically saying there were lots of people who attended those couple of gigs who went on to become massive. Bernard Sumner, Ian Curtis and Peter Hook, who later found fame with Joy Division. Marky Smith of The Fall and Morrissey of The Smiths too. So we rejoin now with Glenn talking about a reunion meeting at his old art college where people were talking about those that attended the gigs.
2: As an alumna of my old art college, and it was Paul Morley and Kevin Cummins and somebody else to, who did the artwork for the factory records, and, um, you know, they spoke. And then somebody at the back of the hall, you know, any, any question, said, who was definitely there? And they had a little confab. Actually, this is a longer ago. It's about 10 years ago. And I was actually playing with the faces at the time, although... Rod didn't do it, and he had another singer, and they had a little conflap on stage, and the only person they could agree who was definitely there at the first show was Mick Hutnell because he went to the opening of an envelope, so <laughs> there we
1: go. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> um, and just ch- quickly touching on that, I, I spoke with Kenny Jones, uh, he's a legend, isn't he? Absolute legend. Um, and you, as you said there, you played with, with the Faces, that reunited uh, with Mick uh, as lead singer. How was that? That was a dream come true for you, was it?
2: That was great. I mean, it was the band that I used to stand in front of the mirror when I was 14 and couldn't play the guitar, pretending I was in them, you know. <laughs> so to get that gig, it was great. And, and we didn't do that many shows, sadly, because Ronnie Wood's always waiting on that phone call that the Rolling Stones are going to go and see what's happened. So for that reason, when somebody says, oh, I've got some tickets for the Stones, do you want to go? And I, I don't know that I necessarily do because they've nicked my gig, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but the last show I did with them was in... Japan, we headlined the the um, the Fuji Festival in front of fifty thousand people. So that that's yeah. not bad for being in the band that you stood in front of the mirror, you know, strumming along to. Yeah, yeah, it was great. But I, I like playing with them. Ronnie really was my favorite guitarist. Kenny's a great drummer. I was mates with Ian McLagan. He played with my band, the Rich Kids. Yeah, played on the album. Did a tour. He's the one who got me the gig. Um, I just like their style of playing and. um for me they opened the door. I bought their album, uh, Long Player when I was a kid, you know, and they got a big Bill Brunsey song on and then some of the stuff they did with Ross Stewart, they do like I'm Losing You by the Temptations and yeah. they sort of turn me on to the staple singers and that whole stack thing, which I didn't really know anything about. So they were kinda of like a doorway for me. As well as liking what they did themselves. And yeah. and also it was kinda of, I suppose subconsciously, I realised that it's quite good to have a lot of different influences somehow. It's just yeah, definitely. making them your own, you know.
1: Yeah, 100%, 100%. Uh, and then just uh, quickly touching back on, on the Sex Pistols again, I mean, when you left the band, um, Malcolm released a statement saying that you were sacked for, for liking the Beatles, but isn't it true that he asked you to, to rejoin the band just a few weeks later? Is that right?
2: Yeah, we had a meeting in a pub um, a blue post behind the, the 100 Club and he said, oh, it's not working out with Sid and, I'd already started getting, been talking to record companies and started getting my Rich Kids thing together. And I said, Malcolm, you know, especially with your um, telegram you sent to the enemy, which was just not true. I said, you just played me. I said, why on earth would I come and do that? You played me the wrong way, you know, tough.
1: And what was his reasoning? What did he, why did he want you back?
2: Because he realised that Sid was a bit of a plonker, really, and a, a, a liability. I think he was sus- he was sounding me out, you know. But I would have been happier if Stephen Paul had sounded me out. Yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we, we were never we were never all you know the closest of mates. But you you got a kind of um, what's the word? You you, you know you got to cultivate that somehow. And, and Steve especially tends to. Emotion, or back then, you used to emotionally run away from everything. Yeah, there you go. So, whether that was, the, perhaps, I should have said yes, but a long time ago, I just turned twenty. You know, you don't always make the best decision <laughs> in, around them. You know.
1: So, do you think if you if you had your time again, you'd say yes this time?
2: Uh, I don't know. I'm not a violent man, but I have learned in life that a writer at the right time can sometimes be the right thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Now, you, you mentioned that you formed the Rich Kids not long after with uh, like Sir Steve New and Midge, and things like that. I've got a question from uh, one of my listeners, Roger Pike. He says, I know Midge was with you in Rich Kids, but did he ask you to join Ultravox?
2: No, he didn't ask me to join Ultravox. Well, there you go, Roger. You yeah, know, I didn't did dislike Ultravox um, and I thought he did quite well with him and i knew him before he joined ultravox in fact when he joined ultravox i was kind of a little surprised really i didn't see the fit but probably people didn't see the fit with him and me back then but yeah the thing with me he, he's you know he's a classy he's a class act and he professional guy he's got a very distinctive voice which is why I got me in the rich and um, it's a talented guy.
1: And just uh, one other little side thing, um, yourself and Sid and, and Scabies and I think Steve as well was involved with, uh, was it the Vicious White Kids, that one-off gig, that, that thing that people still talk about? What, what's your memories of that?
2: Oh, well, we, we did it for, for a laugh more than anything else. Um, uh, Sid lived around the corner from me. The Pistols thing had broken up not only for me, but also for him and the other guys. At that time, and we were sitting next to each other in my local pub. He said, People seem to think we're enemies, you know, but here we are sitting together. What can we do about it? I said, I don't know. I said, I know. know. Well, then we try and do a gig together just for a laugh. And he went, Oh, that's a good idea. You know, who's going to play? And I said, Well, we could get rat in, and Steve's pretty good. He said, The thing is, you're a bass player and I'm a bass player. I went, well, pair this way, said. I'm not going to sing. He went, well, who's going to sing then? And I said, well, how about you sing and I play bass? And he went, oh, all right, then i get it. And we just, I mean, that was, say, on the Monday of one week, it made a few calls, and then the Monday of the next week, we had a couple of days rehearsals, and then we did the show. It was just the one-off thing. And it was all covers, went down well, we they had a full house at the electric ballroom yeah. i remember blondie being there which was kind of ironic considering what i'm doing now yeah <laughs> as well as my record um and that was that but the, the funny thing was i was talking to this guy rob dickens who was head of warner Chapel music and then he run born, born WA in, in europe apart from america and many years later I went to pitch him something and he went, Well, it's all right then, I don't know. He said, Do you know what though? The most important the most exciting thing you ever had I said, Well the pistols he said, No. I said, What then? He said, Vicious white kids. I said, Well, why didn't you sign us? And he said, Well, he was all too out of it <laughs> <laughs> She was kind of, funny. I couldn't really argue with that <laughs> back then.
1: What could have been? What could have been? Um, I've got a couple more questions as well surrounding the uh, the reunion. I've got one from Mike Cascarino. He says, how did the reunion come about? Was it just about making money? And were you happy to do it after what had happened before?
2: Well, well it came about because um, I was in Los Angeles. I went and did something with Mickey Moson, actually. And Steve New came over and he said he found this great singer, so, so me and him went over, me and Steve went over to check out this guy. He was a lovely guy and interesting, but he wasn't the kind of thing I wanted to do. So that didn't really work out. And I was just hanging around in Los Angeles and my mate Calvin, Mickey, Mo's son, said to me, he said, well, what are you going to do now? I said, I don't know. I said, you know what? I haven't spoken to Steve Jones for about 17 years, which it was back then. Um. And he went, oh. Anyway, the next day I was staying at Calvin's house. He said, there's Steve's number. Give him a call. And I went, oh, I don't know about that. You know, after all the shit that's been said. So anyway, this went on for a few days. and he, Every morning, Calvin said to me, give Steve a call. Give Steve a call. Give Steve. And in the end, to shut him up, I did. And Steve said, I heard he was in town. Come over. So I went over maybe the next day. And then as soon as I got there, he said, let's go and see John. And I went, like, whoa. <laughs> so we went to see John, and then we went out for lunch. And I ate it when the bills just sit there on the table. So I paid it. And as soon as I paid it, John said, oh, I've got that. All oh, right. <laughs> then we called up Paul, but Paul was out in London because of the time difference. And then we spoke to him at another stage. This was all at the end. It, and, you know, beginning of the winter, 75. Then we spoke a bit more. Come early... Not 75, 95. Yeah. Come early 96, through Steve's manager, we had the offer of a tour on the table. So it was all pretty last minute, you know. Yeah, that's how it came about. So I think if I hadn't made that original call, it would never have happened.
1: Yeah. Uh, how was that um, the first meeting then with uh, with yourself and, and John and, and Steve after everything that had gone on kind of all those years before? Was it kind of frosty or was it all was it old friends sort of thing?
2: Um, but I think we were sort of kind of circling around each other a little bit. Steve was fine. John, was, I don't know. It was funny. We went around his house to, to pick him up.
0: and
2: He wasn't quite ready. So I I thought, I'm going to say this to him. I'm going to say that to him. And I went to the loo downstairs, which was near the staircase, and he came down. We literally bumped into each other. So everything that maybe both of us had pre-prepared to say to each other, it kind of went out the window because it was just kind of funny the way we bumped into <laughs> it, you know, literally bumped into each other. It was like something yeah. out of Hill show. So, yeah, so <laughs> there you go. Icebreaker,
1: icebreaker. And just lastly, touching on that, Carl um, Voigt said, uh, what did you make of the TV series that came out last year?
2: I'm very disappointed with it. Okay. I told Steve that I think he's got a shocking memory. Did you get any input in it at all or
1: was it all just from Steve?
2: Well, I was invited to get some input in it and I went and met up with Danny Boyle and he promised me this and promised me that and on the strength of that, you know, I helped him get the songwriting rights, which we all had to sign off on, which John didn't want to sign off on and I thought it was important that Steve made his... um, made his film properly. (laughs) There you go. I was was disappointed and in fact I'm also, also... kind of annoyed about it, really. I think it portrays me as being a bit wet when I'm not, you know.
1: Disappointing. Very disappointing. Um, And uh, yeah, just touching on one more thing before we get to the new album. You mentioned this as well. You've been uh, touring recently with Blondie. Now, you guys must go back years and years. I mean, how has that been being uh, on the road with those guys?
2: Well, it's been great, you know. Again, they're a class act. They've got a fantastic body of work. They're they're nice people. Um, I've known Clem since about well, I probably met I probably met Clement, the vicious white kids gig actually, and we've been <laughs> friends ever since and we've done a few different projects, some good, some airbrained over the years. In fact he plays on a couple of tracks on my album. Um um so they were stuck for a bass player and he thought of me. So very short notice, he um, he said, We're stuck, can you come over? And I went, uh, I've got a sort of work permit out, blah 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 Anyway, I did that, and I did, did the tour. And the first gig I did, actually, the first gig I did that with Max, actually was in Glasgow in front of like yeah. fifteen thousand people, or something. Yeah, see, was it S E C C or something? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so in at the deep end, <laughs> but we got more. We got more stuff coming up through the spring as well. I'm going to Central America with them, and yeah. So, so I'm kind of trying to dovetail my record coming out. Um, continuing to help them fantastic. out but I enjoy playing with them it's, it's good you know Clem's a great drummer Debbie's lovely and a great singer I mean she's in her mid 70s and she can still do the best part of a two hour show you know that's cool and, and the guitarist is a good bit. Um, uh there's a guy called Tommy Kessler who's, who's good he's been with them a while and there's a newer guy called Andy Black Sugar I think is fantastic and good cable player, Matt. Yeah, it's a good bunch.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. Right, and that leads us on to, to the important bit now. Out April 27th, your new album, Consequences Coming. Um, it's fair to say it's got a political feel. You're not happy with the way things are right now, are
2: you? Uh, I, I, uh, can anybody be happy with the way things are right now? <laughs> can <laughs> they? Well, um, there's plenty of people with a head in the sand. Of course they can't, you know. Um, yeah, it's... When you write songs, you, you can't help, presumably, about what's going on around you. You know, the whole Brexit debacle, the Boris Johnson, the nonsense of it all, and the ridiculous lurch to the right and being governed by a bunch of devils who haven't got the majority's interest at heart.
1: Absolutely. It's kind of manifested in that first single, which is out now to listen to. It's a real rousing track called uh, Head On A Stick. Tell us about that one.
2: Yeah. Um, well, again, you know, from what I've just been talking about, I think we've been taken by a ride by a lot of people, and I think they should be held to account. And now, while well, I say a head on a stick, I think it's a bit of an expression that means, you know, somebody's got to get their comeuppance. It's not a violent thing, mm-hmm. but it's a figurative thing. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah.
1: As we said, the, the music's out there to listen to now. You can watch the video, the fantastic video that you shot. Looks really good. Um, cool. A couple of tracks on the album I really stood out for me as well. Shine Off Your Shoes. It's got a fantastic guitar solo on there. And uh, Step In The Right Direction is a, a real stomper as well. Love that one too. Tell us about um, oh, okay. the musicians that you've got working on that record.
2: Well, it, I've kind of got a co-tree of my regular band, Chris Master on Drums, and um Neil X plays on it. On it. I strumming it, I actually bumped into I went to see the opening of the Clash Exhibition at the Barbican. Well, it's a couple of years back now. Um and I bumped into Norman Walkwright and said, what are you up to? And he went, well not a lot, then I said, well I thought you would be busy all the time. He said, well everybody thinks and that's why they don't call me up. I said I'm going in, in the studio to start recording something in a couple of days. you want to come down? He went, yeah, I'd love to. So he played bass on quite a lot of and I love Norman's bass playing. Um that and then El Schlick came and played a load of lead guitar over the top because he'd been touring with me. And then I recorded the main bulk of it, but because of lockdown, things didn't happen too much. Mm-hmm. And then I revisited some of it and, and um, wrote a couple of new songs, which kind of the head and the step one and the ship, which maybe, um, in fact, they're the first and last songs on the album. Yeah. I just realised that. Um <laughs> Um, it kind of tops and tells it nicely really about what the album's about so there you go and I also even got a guest guitarist on one track a guy called Hotto who wrote the Kill Bill theme tune Mm -hmm. he's he's like a Japanese um, Japanese he's the guy who's just Jeff Beck Um, yeah so yeah it's quite uh, you know good it's sort of valued and seen members of the more left-field rock fraternity on it. sort of come out and it's chopped off my rotten vocals. <laughs> but I think I can write a good tune and kind um, to put a song together. So that's what we got. Definitely, yeah. definitely.
1: And there's an interesting cover on there as well, Constant Craving. Why did you choose that one?
2: Yeah, Constant Craving. I've always loved that song. Um, when I do an album, on my last album, I, I did a cover of... Um, Scott Walker's Montague Terrace and Blue. And I like okay. to just throw a, a curveball yeah, in yeah. there, you know, do something that people wouldn't necessarily consider me doing. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's maybe a little bit more complicated called ways than my normal songwriting, so it's a challenge to learn. But, yeah, have a go. Yeah, I thought oh, this is sounding pretty good, really, you know. And I think I've got... A, totally different version of K.D. Lang one Um, there's no point doing a cover and not doing something different to it I think it kind of works but you know it's a song about yearning for something to me anyway about a, a yearning for something better somehow you know and that's what I am where I'm at at the moment
1: well, brilliant. As we said, the album, Consequence, is coming. It's out April 27th. You can get a listen of the, the first single, which is out now, though, so definitely do that. But uh, more importantly, the vinyl format is being made available. It's got a limited edition signed art print with it as well, which you have to pre-order, and you can get that through your website. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that that is the case. Um, Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Click on that link, folks, you know support your local rock and roller that's
1: it absolutely absolutely so you won't (laughs) regret it you know (laughs) definitely definitely and so as we said the album's coming out soon you're doing stuff with Blondie what do you have planned for for the rest of the year then Glenn
2: well we're setting up some more shows um, for when I finish with Blondie so that's all it's all in the offing at the moment but I I like playing you know there's there's never that much on the telly and if my (laughs) football team are on they normally lose so I might as (laughs) well go and do a gig you know yeah absolutely
1: Brilliant, well it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you Glenn, um, as we said, um, once more consequences coming, it's out April 27th make sure you pre-order that album now um, the CD, obviously you'll get to stream it at the time but get hold of a physical copy, a CD or the uh, vinyl which is being made available with the limited edition art print as well, definitely get hold of that get onto the uh, Glenn Matlock website and get it all pre-ordered and uh, make sure you've got that copy coming as soon as it comes out, so Glenn it's been a pleasure chatting with you, thank you very much for joining us
2: Alright Paul, thanks fabulous, alright, my well, name you go
1: And a huge thanks to former Sex Pistol Glenn Matlock for speaking with me. He's one of those guys you could speak to for hours and ask a million questions, but you have to respect the 30-minute time slot. Now, if you want to find out more about Glenn and his version of events from those anarchistic, crazy days of the 70s, then I recommend checking out his book, I Was a Teenage Sex Pistol. And of course, pre-order the new album as well, Consequences Coming. It's released on April 27th, although the first track is out to listen to now. It's called Head on a Stick. You can find it on all the usual places. Check out glennmatlock.co.uk for more details about all that sort of stuff and see his social media too. Right, it's the time of the show for this week's top five. And of course, we'll be doing the top five Sex Pistols songs. Although there's not a huge amount to choose from, really, is there? But first, if we cast our minds back all the way to episode 79, the top five songs were Rod Stewart's solo work, thanks to my interview with his guitarist, songwriting partner for decades, and good friend Jim Cregan. Check it out for some great stories if you haven't already. Now, I went with Killing of Georgie at five, Downtown Train at four, You Wear It Well at three, Young Turks at two, and Maggie May as number one. Thanks to everyone that got in touch to add their thoughts. Uh, George Piandis, he said Hot Legs was his number one, followed by Maggie May. Jenny Bull said Downtown Train was her favourite. Dave Couch offered up Mandolin Wind and one that I'd forgotten and I love it as well, In a Broken Dream, that was near the top of his selection. Abby Angel said the killing of Georgie upset her as a kid. And Lisa Cookie went with Forever Young, which was written by my guest, Jim Cregan. As always, a big thanks to everyone who got in touch. So, this week we're going with the top five from Punk's Leading Lights. Now remember, this is my own personal selection, I don't expect you to agree with it, and I really would love to hear from you with your thoughts on my picks, and on your own selections too, so I can give you a mention on next week's show. But here you go, my favourite five songs from The Sex Pistols. At five is possibly one of their most graphic and controversial songs and is one that was written after Glenn Matlock left the band. The lyrics are visceral and raw and tell the story of a punk fan from Birmingham. At number five is Bodies. At number four is a track that doesn't get much coverage, but I love it. It carries all the hallmarks of the band and I actually loved Johnny Rotten's vocals on this. At number four... Is problems. Round,
0: round. The problem is
1: and round, round. At number three is the band's debut single, released on November 26th, 1976, the only release they did under the EMI label. Malcolm McLaren considered it a call to arms. At number three, is Anarchy in the UK. I Number two is probably most people's number one. It's the shock one, the one the establishment kept from topping the charts, the one that stoked the ire of a nation released during Queen Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee. And number two is God Save the Queen. God save the Queen! And at number one for me is a song that I've always loved. It's always stood out to me. The intro is different, the pounding drums, I just love it. Big hit again in the UK, peaking at number six in 1977. My favourite song of theirs, my number one song from the Sex Pistols, is Pretty Vacant. So there you go, my top five songs from the Sex Pistols. With only really one proper album, there's not a huge amount of choice, but I'd still love to hear what you think. What's your favourite track of theirs? I toyed with the idea of My Way, sung by Sid on the great rock and roll swindle, but ultimately went with the core Johnny Rotten-led Pistol songs. Anyway, message me on the social media platforms, or email me, vintagerockpod at gmail.com, and I'll give you a mention on next week's show which, speaking of things, features another rock and roll hall of famer. I am indeed spoiling you. You'll have to listen into to next Monday, though, to find out who it is. And while I've got you, there's a couple of things that don't cost a penny that I'd love you to do to help Vintage RockPod. One is to leave a review on the podcast app that you use. Apple Podcasts is very clearly the most popular, looking at the stats, and you can hit the five star button on there, and if you're feeling very kind, leave a few nice words in the review as well. It really helps the algorithms and things like that to give the podcast a bigger exposure. Spotify also lets you hit five stars now as well, so do that. And things like Podcast Addict, so just go ahead, and have a look and do it now while you've got your phone in your hand. Anyway, another thing you can do is tell a friend, a family member, a co-worker, a bandmate, that fella that sits next to you on the bus. Word of mouth is one of the most effective ways of growing podcasts, so please don't keep it to yourself. Tell everyone about this great podcast that you listen to, which is called Vintage Rock Pod. And thirdly, hit like on the posts on social media. Again, these pesky computer algorithm things. If you don't engage with a page, then you stop seeing the posts. Now, all you got to do is hit the simple thumbs up button on Facebook or YouTube, or hit the love heart on Twitter, whatever it is you see. It makes a big difference as well. So there you go. Three amazing ways to help Vintage Rock Pod, and it's all free, so you've got no excuses. Well... That's it for me then on this week's big interview show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to Vintage Rock Pod on your podcast app so that you get all your episodes. They are released every single day, remember? So I'm going to be back again tomorrow with another This Day Rocks. But until then, take care.